in the fun teacher. We transform the student into our accomplice, nuestro cómplice. Cómplice en el crimen de aprender inglés de verdad. ¿Te da pereza eso del inglés? Pues ahora puedes venirte con un amigo, con tu vecino, con tu hermano, con tu hermana, con tu madre, con tu padre, toda la familia. Porque los cursos intensivos de Baugan, los conocidos como trimestrales, son en grupos reducidos, pero en grupo, así no te da tanto corte. Llámanos y uno de nuestros asesores expertos te informará de todo y de todas las opciones. 91-133-5833. 91-133-5833. Tres, tres. ¿Tienes niños? Pues, ¿qué mejor forma que aprendan inglés que haciendo lo que más les gusta? En nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés se divertirán participando en un sinfín de variadísimas actividades en un entorno seguro y 100% angloparlante, acompañados en todo momento de monitores Vaughan. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al 91-133-5832. 91-133-5832. civilization from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on this program, I'm going to talk a little bit about James Watt, the inventor of the steam engine, the steam engine that uh, people could use, the steam engine that was adapted, the steam engine that made a radical difference in the 19th century. All of that we owe to James Watt. On earlier programs, I've been talking about what a difference the steam engine made to the textile industry in northern England and how the Industrial Revolution began in textiles thanks to the steam engine. I also talked about the British Empire and how steam power completely transformed the British Navy, not just the Navy, but commercial ships as well, and allowed them to go to places that really didn't depend on the wind or on the ocean currents. And uh, this is especially important in the 19th century, allowed them to go upriver so that all of a sudden rivers like the Ganges or the Yangtze in China or or even the Mississippi in the United States, all of these rivers were suddenly accessible. Uh, the only thing missing, of course, was coal, carbon. And this made coal one of the most important commodities of the 19th century. 
But you you can go back a little earlier. I mean, um, I have a book at home uh, about uh, the history of the world with energy, a man's use of energy as the great driver of history so that humanity, uh, humankind can be thought of as um, the animal that was successfully able to adapt and condition the natural environment uh, to the production of energy. And in this book, at least, uh, one of the um, one of the advantages that the West had, one of the advantages that uh, specifically Europe, Northern Europe, had over Asia was entirely geographical. Now, in um, in in terms of plate tectonics, in Europe, you have the African plate colliding and pressuring the uh, European, uh, various European tectonic plates. And this has created a series of mountain ranges, such as uh, the Pyrenees, the Alps, uh, mountain ranges that extend from west to east, east to west. And believe it or not, these these uh, mountains are uh, very effective in preventing masses of air, polar air, uh, subtropical air, from from actually mixing with each other. I mean, you can contrast that to uh, what happens in North America. Uh, because of the expansion in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, because uh, the Mid-Atlantic is getting larger and larger, and uh, the American and European and African continents are moving farther and farther away from each other year by year. It, it means that the Pacific is, is actually contracting. And so that all over the Pacific, you have this phenomena of subduction where one tectonic plate goes under another one. Uh, so that um, areas, uh, <laughs> North America, South America, uh, California, where I'm from, uh, all of these are very prone, uh, propenso, prone to seismic activity, to earthquakes. But of course, the same thing is true on the other side of the Pacific, and for exactly the same reason. It's because the Atlantic is growing and the Pacific is shrinking. And... Uh, when you do have this phenomenon of subduction, many times uh, the the earth that gets uh, swallowed and and goes down um, starts to get heated, begins to melt, and the result is volcanic activity, active volcanoes. And this is why you have volcanoes, uh, for example, starting in um, uh, California, uh, going north through Oregon, Washington. British Columbia, Alaska, you have active volcanoes on the other side. They come Chatka Peninsula, Japan, all the way down through Indonesia. And certainly as a result in the uh, American continent, uh, because it is pushing toward the west, you have mountain ranges that go from north to south. You have the Andes and the Sierra Madre. You have the Rockies. In California, you have the Sierra Nevada, and then 
the Oregon Cascades, the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. All of these mountains extend north to south or south to north, and they block the westerly winds from coming in. Uh, There is uh, precipitation where the air hits those mountains, and afterwards... Uh, toward the east, there is a, uh, what we call a, a rain shadow, um, immediate desert. You can think of the Atacama Desert, or you could think of the great um, western desert in North America, places like Nevada or Utah. But that also means that there is nothing to stop the masses of polar air from contacting directly with subtropical air. Which is why, in North America, you have these uh, great plains, the grandes llanuras, uh, almost like uh, las estepas, the almost like the, the Asian steppes, uh, very flat areas in which these masses of air come into contact, and the result is extreme weather phenomena. So that uh, monumental storms, things like tornadoes, all of those are very common because there is nothing uh, to block the way, uh, like like you have the the Alps in Europe, and in northern Europe, north of the Alps, it becomes extremely beneficial because you have this Atlantic climate, you have rain that is able to penetrate very deeply into the continent, meaning that vast areas of of Germany and Poland and Belarusia, all of those areas are able to receive a significant amount of precipitation. And agriculture is possible there. It means that there is a great deal of arable land, more than enough to produce grain, and uh, there's plenty left over for animals. And that is the big secret to Europe, at least according to the book Energy and History. Um, Animals, which require a a lot of land, um, animals which make much of the effort necessary in this extensive Agriculture, right? Uh, the uh, animals necessary for plowing, right? Arar, los arados, the the plows pulled by animals, animals of traction, or as we say in English, draft animals. Now, if you go to Asia, you find a radically different situation um, tectonically. Uh, the most important thing there is the fact that the Indian subcontinent is moving very quickly toward the north and it has collided with Asian tectonic plates and has put up the Himalaya mountains. The result of this collision has been the Himalaya mountains, which are absolutely immense. The Himalaya mountains are so big that uh it it deeply affects atmospheric phenomena the the great uh, jet stream an enormous and very rapid current of air which circulates in the upper atmosphere um is is affected 
by the Himalayas. Normally, uh, the jet stream, for example, in Europe, it's a little further south in summertime and a little further north in, in wintertime. But when it gets to the Himalayas, it, it has to either be south of the Himalayas or, or, or north of the Himalayas. Uh, that means that it, it deeply affects all of the winds around it. Uh, this is largely what is responsible for the monsoon winds. Six months out of the year blowing in one direction and the other six months out of the year blowing in another direction. This, of course, on other programs, I've been talking about how, how useful all of this was in terms of navigating the Indian Ocean, the sailing ships going with the monsoons, and all of this responsible for intercontinental commerce between Africa and India, and uh, between India and the South China Sea. But the thing is that when the monsoon comes, it brings the rains, and these humid clouds hit the Himalaya mountains, and they begin to discharge copious amounts of water. And the result are these huge rivers, so that, for example, the, the Indus, but um, uh, the, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Irrawaddy, the Mekong, the, the Yangtze, all of these major rivers in Asia, all of them, uh, they, they have their headwaters, right? El Nacimiento de, de los Rios. The, the headwaters of these rivers are, are all relatively close to each other. They're in the Himalayas, right where that that water from the monsoons uh, discharges. And the result is, uh, well, this fluvial uh, geography and a fluvial society where irrigation becomes very important. Uh, you combine this with a source of calories like like rice, which, you know, if you want to do it right, if you want to really harvest rice, if you want, if you want to make the most out of the rice crop, the entire village needs to participate. You need an enormous amount of cooperation. And partly as a result of this, partly, uh, because rice itself is such a, a great source of calories. Um, you can have population densities in these areas, talking about the Yangtze, the Mekong, the Irrawaddy, uh, the Brahmaputra, the, the Ganges. Uh, you can have population densities in these areas of up to 3,000 people per square kilometer. I'm talking about um, in, in traditional societies. I'm talking about prehistoric societies with 3,000 people per square kilometer, which is unbelievable. I mean, well, think of Soria. Soria has something like um, uh, two people per square kilometer. Uh, and, and that was in, as I say, traditional society. Even today, um, more than 50% of the world's population is concentrated into a relatively small area just below where the monsoon rains 
hit the Himalayas. In other words, um, geography really is destiny. The the way to make the agriculture work. uh, Earlier I was um, on an earlier program, on my last program, I was speaking about China. And one of the disadvantages that China has, um, not a lot of arable land so that the, the the vast majority of land in China is not apt for cultivation. Once you start to get those population pressures and, uh, well, just like just like everywhere else, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, make the mistake of building new cities and new houses on land that would also serve for agricultural purposes. I mean, you can see this uh, in, you can certainly see this in California, right? The, the area, um, the area that today is uh, Silicon Valley and uh, a little further to the south, uh, San Jose and the Santa Clara Valley, uh, all of that, <laughs> that was enormously fertile. And uh, just over 100 years ago, that was producing one-third of the fruits and vegetables consumed in the United States. Just that that small area, one-third of the fruits and vegetables consumed in the United States. Whereas in the 21st century, it's all houses. The agricultural production from that area in our time, is practically zero. It's it's anecdotal. So, yes, this is a mistake made in California, a mistake made in Spain, most definitely, um, and a mistake made in China. Putting, putting an enormous city, an extensive city, on an area that would be better if it were agricultural land, better for everyone. In any case, and um, the situation in China, and uh, to a large extent, Asia in general, if you want to make that land more productive, because land is limited, uh, you have no choice but to practice intensive farming. You can't bring more land into cultivation. It has to be intensive. And usually that involves very hard work and and human work. You need humans to be able to do that. Traditionally, uh, you wouldn't use animals because because animals require so much land. So let's let's go back and compare that to uh, Northern Europe, where up to forty percent of the land can be devoted to, uh, to to animals, growing food for animals. This is a luxury that in Asia. You, you cannot afford. In Asia, it has to be intensive. In Northern Europe, it can be extensive. And uh, little by little, um, it has improved. In, well, traditionally, uh, you had slave societies. The Romans especially, they conquered um, much of Europe and they enslaved their enemies. And with this kind of labor, there really was very little incentive for them to make technological progress so that while the Romans had um, technology capable of saving labor, things like um, uh, Molinos de Viento, windmills and water mills, 
and uh, Nordias, water wheels. It, in general, the um, uh, the Romans really didn't use them until very late in the empire when there was a, a crisis in um, terms of conquering new territory and uh, slaves became scarce. Then the Romans had a certain incentive to replace slave labor with technology. Before that, it's it's absolutely amazing that, um, for example, La, la, la Huerta de, de Valencia or La Huerta de Murcia or la, la Vega de Granada, all of this was done by the Moors and then, of course, later the Moriscos. But the uh, technology there, uh, the technique for getting the most out of the land, all of that came to Spain directly from Mesopotamia after the Moorish conquest. And much of it was simply ruined or, or forgotten after the expulsion of the Moriscos in the early 17th century. But the fact is that uh, things like the Noria, uh, which were brought from Mesopotamia, well, the Romans already had that. Uh, when the British were trying to modernize the mining techniques in Rio Tinto, they, they discovered Norias. There were water wheels in those mines, right, para chicar, uh, in order to uh, remove the water that uh, accumulated in those tunnels. This is something that... Um, this is something that the steam engine and uh, James Watt became notorious for being able to do. But the Romans, uh, the, the Romans were doing this with water wheels. It just they, they had no incentive to adapt this to irrigation. But again, it, it was a it was a very long progress. I mean, um, going back to Roman times, look at the mosaics. Look at a Roman mosaic. And look at the horses. Now, the Romans were generally smaller than we are. And when you see representations of Romans next to horses, you will see that the horse mm, comes up to maybe their shoulders or their chest. In other words, um, in Roman times, horses were only slightly larger than uh, many of our big dogs are today. A, a Roman horse would be smaller than a, a pony is now. Uh, you can see this for um, uh, for many of the animals, but uh, especially especially for the animals that were later adapted and transformed to give us more power. And over the course of the Middle Ages, uh, you can see uh, archaeology shows us how horses were getting bigger and getting stronger. They were able to pull more, and the harness, right, arnes, was finally adapted uh, to use that power efficiently. And then later, of course, with the adaption of uh, the adoption, rather, of, of um, estribos, no stirrups, it it became complete. But again, uh, such things were much more common. On farms in the West, where you had enough land uh, to be able to grow food for the horse, than say in Asia, where uh, land was scarce and very valuable, and you wanted to farm intensively for human consumption, until finally uh, getting on to the 18th century. And yes, the new power will be 
steam. And the person they give steam to the world, um, James Watt, um, steam uh, almost instantaneously, uh, as I say, propelling ships all over the world. I mean, for, for better and worse, uh, the, uh, the, the phylloxera epidemic that uh, destroyed all of the wine and uh, winemaking capability all throughout Europe. Uh, the, the phylloxera epidemic was made possible because of the speed of steamships, right? Um, the the parasite in question would have died somewhere in the mid-Atlantic if, if the steamship had not been so fast in bringing the esqueges, uh, bringing the, the, the vine shoots from the Americas to Europe. And then, of course, things like cholera uh, in the 19th century uh, spread practically instantaneously all over the world uh, because of the speed of steamships that steam adapted to the locomotive. And again, uh, all of this because of James Watt, born in Scotland, not very far from Glasgow, born in the year 1736, and his basic education at home, his mother teaching him how to draw, his uh, father teaching him elementary arithmetic and how to use tools, because, yes, his education was basically manual, and um, he became the, the quintessential uh, manitas, uh, handyman. Okay, I'm going to talk about that in the second half of the program. Programa completo de inmersión en inglés con alojamiento incluido. Tus hijos hablarán inglés durante todo el día mientras participan en talleres, juegos y actividades deportivas y multiaventura. Y todo eso sin clases. Todas las modalidades de campamentos Baugan están diseñados para niños y niñas entre 6 y 15 años, independientemente de la programación o la instalación. En nuestros campamentos de inglés se acostumbran a utilizar el inglés sin miedo y con total confianza, en un entorno rural, acogedor y seguro. La coordinación pedagógica de Baugan asegura un ambiente de inversión, cuidado y de calidad. Tráelos a nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés. 911-335-832 911-335-832 Ahora con nuevas facilidades de pago. Agua, plazos sin intereses. Llámanos al 911-335-832 Campamentos de verano Baugan. El líder del sector. 911-335-832 No lo dejes para el último momento. Aprenderán inglés mientras viven mil aventuras. No olvides preguntar por el resto de campamentos e inversiones de la línea Junior de Baugan. Ahora puedes aprender inglés con Baugan y Alexa de Amazon. Solo tienes que decir... Alexa, quiero aprender inglés. Bienvenido a Aprende Idiomas con Alexa. Hoy vas a poder aprender lecciones de inglés nivel iniciación con Alexa en colaboración con Baugan. Podrás aprender desde nuevo vocabulario a pronunciación y mucho más. Cada lección contiene secciones de práctica y de preguntas. Empecemos. Veamos ahora cinco actividades con el verbo ir. To go. Ir al gimnasio es. To go to the gym. 
La G de Gym Suena casi como una H To go to the gym Dilo tú To go to the gym Correcto Eso es Practica inglés con Baugan y con Alexa de Amazon Acuérdate, solo tienes que decir Alexa, quiero aprender inglés Esto sí que es un Buen comienzo Te toca una semana en un lugar apartado. Nativos angloparlantes de todas partes del mundo. Uno por cada estudiante. Terminantemente prohibido hablar en español. Actividades organizadas y conversaciones en inglés a todas horas. No exageramos. Aquí o hablas inglés o hablas inglés. Y da igual las veces que te lo contemos. Hasta que no lo vivas no sabrás que Baugan Town te va a quitar el miedo al inglés para siempre. Lo que pasa en Baugan Town no se puede contar. Tienes que vivirlo. Ven a Baugan Town. Más información, grupobaugan.com. Summer camps, campamentos de Vaughan. Your kids will love them and their English will grow. Our summer camps, campamentos de Vaughan. Just bring us your children for English and much more. Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo la cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda, para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de másters. Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. 91-133-5833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos. 91-133-5833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del máster. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Aquí llega Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pas perfecto. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pas perfecto, pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. ¡Wow! Eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Fil de gas, Lorena. ¡Wow! Increíble. Ya se ha acercado todas, todas. ¡Qué barbaridad! Lorena Martínez, señoras y señores, qué crack el examen es de 10. Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método Baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911335832, 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. ¿Tienes niños? Pues, ¿qué mejor forma que aprendan inglés que haciendo lo que más les gusta? En nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés se divertirán participando en un sinfín de variadísimas actividades en un entorno seguro y 100% angloparlante. Acompañados en todo momento de Monitores Baugan. Campamentos de verano para niños. No abandones tu inglés. Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al 91 133 5832 91 133 5832 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Western Civilization. From Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on the first part of the program, I was talking about energy and history, right? Energy as a driver of history. A man's attempt to use energy uh, to replace the um, debility, the fragility of the human body. At first uh, with animals and then later on with machines. And I spoke about how uh, certainly uh, Western Europe, because of its geography, has a certain advantage in this way, that to really use animals well uh, involves extensive farming, which in turn requires cheap, fertile land, abundant fertile land, uh, because land, let's say on a, on a large farming estate, uh, land can, um, uh, up to 40% of that land would be dedicated to, uh, uh, to animals and the use of animals. Then again, animals, uh, certain machines, the water mill, the wind mill, the water wheel for irrigation and and now we will talk about the steam engine. We will talk about James Watt again from just next to Glasgow in Scotland. As I mentioned just before the break, mostly homeschooled uh, in part because he suffered from illnesses when he was young. Uh, that kept him out of school for extended periods of time. Uh, his best subjects were arithmetic and geometry. And uh, by the age 14, he was making very rapid progress in all of his studies. Uh, remember that areas like Scotland at this time had the advantage of near universal literacy. And another great advantage uh, in the north that uh, unfortunately was not true of Mediterranean countries was this idea that um, higher studies were reserved for... Um, Hidalgos and that Hidalgos were, could not be, by definition, could not be, uh, involved in commerce or work with their hands. Uh, in the North, there really wasn't that kind of prejudice. So that, um, well, if you, if you read the biographies of, uh, many of the great men of science at this time, if you read the biographies of, uh, many people in the, in the 18th and 19th century that later went on to be, um, to be someone or, uh, somebody famous, uh, especially the men, but not limited, no, the, the, the women as well, uh, what you get is people who tinker. And uh, the, the very fact that the word tinker uh, does not exist in Spanish says quite a lot to me. And now, of course, the, the origin of the word tinker uh, from tin, right? Estaño, ojalata. And so if you think of the um, profession of tinker, uh, you can think of a quincallero. And just as... In Spain, the uh, quincalleros were uh, stigmatized. Many times they lived uh, in a way that was very similar to the gypsies, but without 
being Roma without being uh, having the ethnicity, uh, the ethnic origin of the gypsies. So, yes, uh, Los Kinkis, right? If you read uh, the biography of Elute, I'm talking about who the Kinkis were and their, their way of life. Um, uh, it was practically identical in traditional Britain that that tinkers were uh, apart. Tinkers were semi-nomadic, and that tinkers were stigmatized, um, in many cases forced to live apart, and often confused with gypsies. However, this has very little to do with the word, with the verb, to tinker, because for some reason that I I, I simply can't explain. Um, I've looked, I've tried to investigate, but uh, I, I don't know why. Um, the verb to tinker is not stigmatized at all. Uh, the um, it, You look in a dictionary and they will tell you that the, um, the uh, juguetear in Spanish, to toy with something, uh, this is this is absolutely wrong. Uh, to toy with something is not to tinker. And of course, um, the, the other translation they might give you in a dictionary would be remendar but that really doesn't work either that's more related to the profession of tinkers no uh, to tinker especially when children do it to tinker is to disassemble and reassemble right and this is uh, when when a child has an object in front of it uh, the child is curious to know what goes on inside. And the child wants to take the object apart and examine the components, right, uh, the, the pieces that make it up, and then to put it back together again. And this is a, a natural part of childish curiosity. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, things today, our technology is... Uh, too complex for children to be able to do that. So that in the past, whereas uh, children would be very happy to, um, I don't know, to disassemble and reassemble a uh, a bell, like a, a timbre, or even a bicycle, uh, today they are actively discouraged from doing the same thing with, say, uh, a mobile phone. It is simply uh, too too complicated for that. But this, this normal curiosity, uh, as to how things work, right? Um, uh, how does a hinge work? Bisagra. All of these things that, um, that were actively encouraged in children, especially boys, uh, up until recently, at least in the Anglo-Saxon world. I, I haven't seen it as much in Spain or Spanish society, and certainly not where um, where it was considered compatible with higher studies. Remember that higher studies uh, reserved for an aristocracy that would lose its status if it began working too much with its hands. But of course, well, even back in the 18th and 19th century, there were people who um, who believed that this was. Um, Othiosidath, right? This was idleness and, and not not useful. And that uh, children should be ashamed of themselves for using their time in this way. Evidently, one of the things that uh, did amuse um, 
James Watt, even as a um, even as a child, was the whole idea of steam, the evaporation and condensation involved in steam. Now, uh, Glasgow, uh, I mentioned uh, Scotland several times on this program, and how that um, disastrous attempt uh, a generation before James Watt was born, this disastrous attempt on the part of the Scottish to uh, uh, to form a colony in what is Panama today, in, in the heart of the Spanish Empire, and um, in an area that was not apt for any kind of farming that uh, these people might have understood. And, and um, you know, they began to die of tropical diseases as soon as they arrived. And this whole enterprise, this whole fiasco, represented such a severe economic loss for Scotland that it took them the longest time to recover. And meanwhile, uh, they really had no choice. They they had become part of a United Kingdom. And after this point, yeah, you, we're talking about um, of the British initiatives, although Glasgow, Glasgow later on, Glasgow is going to be considered the second city of the empire. Uh, Glasgow with an enormous shipbuilding industry, right? Astilleros. Um, but still, from from um, from the beginning, you have um, well, tobacco, uh, sugar, cotton, uh, much of it there for transshipment, with uh, Scottish uh, commercial connections in the North Sea, in the Baltic Sea, and um, on an earlier program, I was talking about um, the fact that in the British East India Company, places like India, later on um, Singapore, Hong Kong. Uh, that fully half the people participating in the British East India Company were actually Scottish. And uh, a, a lot of this is due to a, um, a singular lack of opportunity at home so that uh, any person with a brains and ambition would be tempted to emigrate. Although in places like Glasgow and especially Edinburgh, you had uh, what became to be called the uh, Scottish um, Enlightenment, right? The Illustration. So that the the world of ideas uh, was very dynamic and active there as well. And, of course, uh, James Watt was able to participate in this. You would not have had the uh, social barrier, as I say, of um, Hidalguia to prevent him from participating actively. Now, his father owned a shop for uh, supplies for this maritime empire, right? Uh, uh, ships that needed uh, sails or rope. And there in his father's shop, he began to to manufacture uh, things that he might need, right? Uh, pulleys, uh, poleas, no? And, and um, cranes, gruas, and uh, manufacture his own pumps, uh, bombas, learning how to work with different metals and different woods. And uh, he became very proficient at this. It was just a question of where he could best use his um, mechanical talents and what kind of profession he would choose. He entered into the service of a mechanic. The, uh, the man called himself an optician. 
Right. Uh, supposedly um, specializing in optical instruments. However, uh, this man was a little of a, a generalist. He, he didn't uh, turn down any job. Um, money is money, right? Uh, so from repairing umbrellas to um, glasses, right, spectacles, as they were called, or instruments for fishing, uh, anything. Uh, he, ne- he never said no uh, to a job. However, there was, you know, there was only oh, so much that James could learn in this situation. And when he believed that he had absorbed the lesson as well as he could, he wanted to go to London. Now, this might have been a mistake. Uh, Glasgow, you know, was on the beginning of the Industrial Revolution as well. It began in terms of textiles in and around Manchester and Liverpool. Uh, this is further north, this in Scotland. But still, uh, you have all kinds of access to the uh, the two things that are absolutely necessary for industry, or at least the beginnings of industry at this time in the 18th century, and that was coal. Carbon and iron. You, you have them there in abundance. And so, uh, Glasgow will be one of the great stars of the Industrial Revolution very soon. But no, uh, James is going off to London. But, uh, unfortunately, London is in the hands of the guilds, uh, still, uh, the, los gremios. Uh, in a guild situation, a boy has to serve an apprenticeship of between five and seven years. Remember that the uh, the guild system uh, had been developed in the uh, Middle Ages um, precisely to limit competition, so that there is no way to uh, there's no way to break into a um, profession w- without going through the guild system. Right? You would have the apprenticeship. And then you would work your way into the position of a journeyman. Now, uh, journey in English, uh, you might know it as viaje, but uh, a journey, it comes from the Latin diurno, and journey, uh, journée in French, jornada in Spanish. And I, well, at least I've read that um, this, this um, journey uh, became synonymous with travel over land uh, because most trips at that time involved several days. Now, the fact that um, un oficial del gremio would be a journeyman, uh, there are two possible explanations. One is that uh, they were called journeymen because they were paid and quite often paid by the day, no? Um, como a destajo. Uh, piecework, but the other um, etymological origin of journeyman that I have read is that uh, journeymen were often required to go on a three-year working trip and offer themselves to different masters, and this way they would experience what it was like uh, to work in different workshops, no talleres, and then of course after. Um, serving as a journeyman, uh, one would um, be able to make a masterpiece and the masters would judge that piece and allow the journeyman uh, to become a master and 
only at that point could you open your own shop, right? Uh, these people called, well, veedores in Castile and mayordomos in Aragon, clavaris in Valencia. And these are the people with the ultimate approval, and of course they di- they didn't give it willingly. Uh, they 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 wanted to limit competition in so far as possible. Uh, justifying this by saying that they were uh, guaranteeing the quality of the work produced. But of course, at, at this point, James Watt was far older than a boy would normally be, uh, beginning an apprenticeship, and he had no desire to to go through this to submit himself. To this, he wanted to know as much as he could in the shortest possible time. And of course, master after master uh, turned him away until finally he found one who was going to take him for a year. With one year's instruction, he believed that he had learned uh, pretty much everything there was to know in terms of the fabrication of instruments. That's what he wanted to learn, uh, instrument making. He wrote to his father, he said, I... I am now able to work as well as most journeymen, though I am not so quick as many. And he was able to do this without, as I say, going through the, uh, going through the apprenticeship. Now, you can imagine his shock and disappointment when he returned to Glasgow and the guild in Glasgow refused to recognize what he had done. And, uh, the, uh, Let's call it el atajo, the shortcut that he had taken. And they forbade him, prohibited him from opening a business. Now, fortunately, he had a connection. Fortunately, he had a friend who was teaching at the University of Glasgow. And that man provided him with a shop and a small room in one of the buildings there on the university campus outside the jurisdiction of the guild. And, well, unfortunately, unfortunately there, you know, he was back doing the same thing. Um, if he wanted to make a living, he couldn't say no to a job. And so, yeah, repairing umbrellas, fixing broken glasses, uh, fishing equipment, anything he could to pay the bills. Um, musical instruments, although he had no talent for music himself, uh, he he could fix violins, and um, he started to to make organs. Uh, but um, but but for the longest time, uh, everything that came to him was in the form of musical instruments, uh, flutes, or harps, or guitars. And although his life wasn't really going anywhere, uh, at least you know he had. Um, stimulating intellectual activity and certainly um, no lack of books for self-study so that pretty much everything that was currently being discovered about chemistry or mechanics, physics, all of this, um, all of this was, was accessible to him. And then, then we get to the question of mining. As I mentioned on the first part of the program, the mines tend to fill up with water and it was uh, always a question of how to pump the water out of the mines. As I said in uh, Rio Tinto, in Huelva, when the British took over in the 19th century, they found that the Romans had been using water wheels, right, norias. They found uh, m- more than 20 norias at the bottom of the mines. 
But for some reason, it had not occurred to the Romans to, to use this for irrigation purposes, possibly because at that time, slaves were so cheap. In any case, um, well, fast forward to the 18th century, and we are in a mining boom. But still, you, you don't have... Uh, you're, you're using human labor. I mean, um, men and women and children are working in those mines and taking out the uh, mena, right, the ore, spelled O-R-E, taking out the uh, iron ore or the tin ore uh, individually in, in um, buckets, como cubos. And there, well, there was a, um, una especie de torno, or windless in in English, that that you could use. You could also use horses to be able to do that. But of course, the deeper the mine, the harder it became to lift any of that coal or tin or iron out of the tunnels. And so uh, you had this um, increasing need to be able to find a pump Right? No, una bomba. Bomba de agua. If not, uh, the mines wouldn't be able to go deeper. Or, uh, you, you could, you could dig the mine, but very quickly, uh, you would have to shut it. You would have to close it because the water would make it unfeasible. Now, this was the great incentive for the creation of the very first steam engine. What? heard of the steam engine back when he was a young man in 1759. The idea attracted him. It, it it captivated his imagination and he began to read about the successful and unsuccessful attempts to, to make steam engines. Now, because, because uh, uh, steam engines are, well, uh, because you, they all need fire, right? You, you need to heat the steam. Well, back then, they were called fire engines. And it's kind of amusing because uh, t- today fire engine is um, el, el coche de bomberos, right? In English, uh, engine is any motor grande. And uh, so you have the fire station, the fire brigade. You have a fireman who drives a fire truck, which is also called a fire engine. But uh, back then, these uh, these fire engines produced steam. This is what they were there for. Uh, the, the great admitters, uh, German and Italian, but these initial inventions, uh, impractical, completely impractical. All right. I seem to have run out of time. Um, thank you for listening. And I will continue talking about James Watt on my next program.
después de nuestros summer camps no querrán volver a casa. Apúntalos a uno de nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés sin clases. Este verano regálales una experiencia inolvidable en inglés con sus amigos. Regálales un summer camp. Más información en el 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. ¿Crees que tienes un buen nivel de inglés? Vete a Baugantown y date cuenta, nada más llegar, de que tu dominio es más cercano al cero absoluto. En inglés decimos humble pie, o sea, comer tarta de humildad. Baugantown te dará primero un rudo despertar y conforme pasan los días, un nuevo despertar. Un despertar lleno de seguridad, confianza y convicción. Si existen los milagros, Baugantown se cuenta entre ellos. 